Welcome to the Glitching Metal Podcast, where I discuss anything and everything hard rock and heavy metal, new and old. Welcome to episode 4 of the Glistening Metal Podcast, where we discuss your favorite and not-so-favorite hard rock and heavy metal bands from the past and present. On episode 4, we continue our discography on Black Sabbath, and of course today we are talking about Volume 4, released in 1972. Now, Volume 4 is where Sabbath start to get really interesting. This is where they start to branch out and be more than just that hard rock band from England. Now, at this point, Sabbath were fresh off of Master of Reality, touring through 1971, a little bit of early 1972, touring through California, tend to really like California, and they're like, all right, we're going to make our next record here. So they go to California, rent out a mansion in May 1972, start the writing process. Now, what's different between this album and Master of Reality, the big difference, now cocaine is majorly involved in the game. So basically, these guys are doing pretty much their body weight in cocaine in these writing sessions. They are high out of their mind, and you can kind of tell with this album. The big difference between Master of Reality and Volume 4 besides production, which I'll get into, is the overall kind of tone of it. This album is way more upbeat. It's way more upbeat. It's got way more kind of, I guess you'd call, proggy elements to it. And like I said, I'll get to more about all that when we get into the tracks. But tonally, it's a whole different beast, which is crazy considering the band have really... They've been just doing album after album after album. But I think with the them being in a, such a new place that they actually really enjoyed, because I think, I think it was Iomi or Geezer that said that in California they felt like they could actually get a rest. They could actually chill instead of always going, going, going. It's ironic because that's what cocaine makes you do. But they really liked it there. It was different. It was, it was just fresh to them. So here they are. They are producing this album by themselves. This is the first album that they are in many albums that they are producing by themselves. Uh, the last three were Roger Bain, but the band feel like now with the new direction they're going in, they feel like now they have to they have to kind of do it themselves. And unfortunately, I feel like the production of this album kind of suffers from that. It's very guitar forward. Oh, sorry, my dog is trying to get to the microphone. Come here. Um, it's very guitar forward. The bass, while the bass is audible, compared to the last album, it kind of takes a little bit of a backseat. And Bill's drums, while I, like I said, you can still make out what they're, him and Geezer are both playing. It still suffers a little bit. They sound just a little tinny. But there's actually... Um, just before starting this review, I actually listened to the super deluxe version that actually just released. 
uh, so I guess perfect timing. Um, the mastering, the 2021, 2020, I don't, I don't know what you would consider it. I would consider it 2021 because that's when we got it. Um, the That mastering, that most recent mastering is really, really good. I feel like it kind of feels like what the album should have sounded like sonically when it was released. But anyway... It's really the songs that are the are what make the album and why so many people still talk about this album. New chapter. This is when they're really starting to branch out with different sounds. More than just the blues and jazziness. Now they're incorporating psychedelia. More acoustics. Um, more different kinds of instrumentation. Uh, like... The use of orchestras, which they did use an orchestra on two songs, I believe, on this album. Uh, I'm sure someone will remind me if I'm missing one. But, yeah, the and the, a whole lot of melody, too. Even the riffs have a lot of melody intertwined with them. With Iomi doing more of these kind of arpeggio-style riffing. Uh... Which is really a really nice change of pace, and I think some people this album really divides fans because people are like, "Is it really as heavy as some of their others?" I don't think it's it, it's not as heavy as um, Master of Reality to me personally, and I feel like Sabotage, which we'll talk about later too, uh, is a little bit further, a little bit higher on that. But it is still a very heavy album. It's very, it's still got a lot of that oomph that we love Sabbath for. It's just way more upbeat. Um. So now let's get into the tracks. So track one, Wheels of Confusion. I say wheels, wheel, wheels. I always forget there's an S on the end sometimes. Um. Wheels of Confusion slash The Straightener, which is kind of like the end kind of jam they do, but we'll get there. Uh, opens with this kind of bluesy, kind of high guitar string bending from Iomi, and then goes right into this kind of sludgy, droning kind of uh, mid-tempo riff, and then Ozzy comes in. Vocals, a little bit more melodic this time. Uh, overall, like I said, the production, you can already tell it's a lot more, there's a lot more room in between the instruments. I feel there's a lot more, um, reverb in places and stuff like that. So it definitely feels the production feels completely different. Uh, lyrics are still kind of down depressing, uh, which Sabbath is known for kind of being about confused about life and not knowing what to do. Uh, and then the song, this, this middle riff, the um, in between verses is really, it's so it's interesting. Like I said, it's not something we've seen before on a past Sabbath album. It's kind of got a little bit of a proggy kind of feel to it. Um, and then, of course, we do have a jam right in the middle uh, where the sp it speeds up with a nice build from Iomi. Uh, a lot of, you can tell there's a lot of little overdubs and stuff. There's just a lot going on. 
and then it goes back into the verses. Uh, so there's definitely kind of, it almost feels like a classical kind of arrangement where it, it even in the jamming part, it kind of goes into the different little sections. And then finally we get into the straightener at the end, which is all instrumental. It's pretty much just a, a really high tempo jam that uh, fades out with a Iomi, just one of his best solos on the album. Uh, really cool multi-tracked solo uh, that kind of goes along with the solo at the beginning, that really slow one, but this time it's a little bit sped up and then it kind of gets higher and higher. And then Iomi just goes off the rails until it fades out. Opener, very, very strong. Very strong opening track. Um, I think it it's a perfect track to open this album because it has that that signature sound that they had already pretty much copyrighted at this point. But it gives enough. There's enough melody and different kinds of tempo changes and stuff to kind of show where they're kind of headed uh, with the next few albums in the next few years. Um, so yeah, the, we, uh, wheels of confusion slash a straightener, extremely solid opener. Um, next we get to tomorrow's dream, which is one of the most straightforward tracks on the album. It's really, really up tempo or it's not super up tempo. It's kind of, it's really upbeat. That's the one word I know I keep probably repeating that word, but that's what this album really is compared to the last one, especially it's very upbeat. Very heavy power chord riff, but it's very, um, it's not fast, but it's not, it's just got a little bit of a get up to it. And then, uh, the later chorus that gets really, really melodic is where you really see the band really hone in on playing with a lot of different, um, melody between the vocals and the guitars with Ozzy kind of soaring over a really kind of the reverb is almost like extremely high on the the riffs in in some of this album um there's some parts of a later track cornucopia where it feels like it's just creating this really like hazy atmosphere but it's really really cool um the solo on this album isn't really an out of control one it's really it's a lot more bluesy than the song before it. And it, it, it doesn't go, it doesn't go all out. It kind of stays in a certain, uh, it's kind of tamed in a way, but it really works. And the song kind of just ends, I guess. Um, there's no real, like, like the first track where there's, there's kind of multiple parts. This one's kind of one note and done. But it's still a pretty damn heavy song. Great second track. Uh, up up next is track three. And this one I, I don't have much to say about. This is Changes. Uh, kind of like... It's the, it's the ballad off the album. But in terms of ballads go, I've always just thought it was kind of generic. I know the story was that Iomi wrote it. This mansion they were staying at, there was a piano, and he kind of learned piano there. He wrote the song on it, and the band kind of all just sat around and kind of just came up with it one night, coked out of their heads. And 
it's just, I don't know, it just never really hit a chord with me. I just always thought it was kind of just a generic ballad for this band that could really, really write good ballads at this point um, and have really good atmosphere to them. I just felt like Changes just felt a little, it just feels a little generic. And it just never really goes anywhere with me. So it's just, it's. I think it really just comes down to, it's just not my cup of tea, really. So it's just a track I typically skip over. And that goes the same with track four, probably out of the entire Black Sabbath discography. This song, if you can even call it that, is the most throwaway thing in the band's history. Uh, FX is pretty much like, I think it's like a minute and a half long or somewhere around there of just things bobbing off Tony's guitar strings and sounding echoey. It almost sounds like it's underwater. Um, there's nothing to, there's absolutely nothing to it. They kind of just came up with this one again, coked out of their minds. I think Tony's cross hit his strings on his guitar and everyone was like, oh, I like how that sounds. So they made a track out of it, which I guess do what you do, but I kind of felt like it could have just been like tacked on to the end of another track or something like they, like they could have used that slot for another song. I always felt. Uh, but what are you going to do? It's part of Sabbath history now, so we're just going to have to sit and take it. However, track five is Supernaut, and that totally makes up for the lack of the last two songs for me. Supernaut is insanely good. Very heavy, very up-tempo. Uh, the verse riff I've always loved because even though it's simple, Iomi makes it interesting because... He'll he'll hit a note and then he'll he'll do this slide thing where he comes back into a note lower, and it's uh it's just really unique. I just love listening to it because I'm just like God. How how did he come up with that? It, it's just rhythm wise, it's just really really cool. Uh, and then there's a part in the middle where kind of just the guitars and bass just cut, but Bill is just jamming away, and there's like almost the Spanish guitar kind of, or Santana-ish kind of thing going on with the acoustic guitar, which I always felt was kind of like a hint to what they would do with later albums where they would inject these acoustic kind of interludes in their songs. Um, they would do it with Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. They would do it with kind of Symptom of the Universe later on. So it's kind of like playing on that idea where they would eventually go. But here it's kind of like used as like something that builds into the final couple of verses and the final just jam on that la on that uh that opening kind of wah wah riff wah wah riff the pedal Tony's using obviously um it's just a heavy fucking song and I've always loved it it's always one of the major highlights for me. Uh, going into track six, we have Snowblind, which is the most well-known song off the album. It's their love letter to cocaine. If I remember correctly on the, the liner notes, they they thank the great Coca-Cola factory. Uh, you know what that means. Um, which I always thought was funny, but that just shows how much cocaine they were just doing at the time. Even in the first, the first uh, few verses, Tony... Or uh, Ozzy, you can hear him say faintly, you can hear him say cocaine, which live, 
he does after every every um every take he'll scream cocaine to the crowd so it's a song that doesn't try to hide it uh great heavy main riff um again that balances the melody and the heavy power cording it's one of Iomi's best easily and then it has that kind of quick kind of jam in the middle kind of like an into the void kind of thing but here it's a little bit more um it's got a kind of a shuffle to it which is really nice it's a great song and the the build in the end with the orchestra uh which i find it ironic they got an orchestra to play on a song blatantly about cocaine but hey it's the 70s anything was possible um but it just it adds an extra dimension to the song while tony's just really hitting these high notes uh, it just works. It, it's a classic. It'll always be a classic. And it's the main, I, I guess it's the main kind of centerpiece on the album. Which then leads into track seven, which is the first song on the album to kind of show the their doom metal roots from Master of Reality, with, especially with the opening. That's uh, And this song is, of course, Cornucopia. Um, and the main riff... For the verses, it's got a really cool shuffle that I guess Bill Ward hated playing the song. And I can kind of understand why, because rhythm, rhythmly, it's really unique. It's got this really kind of stop-start, crash-crash-crash kind of thing. Um, Like, it, it's just, it's, it's one of my favorite underrated Sabbath songs, because it's one of those songs that kind of, it's one of the best songs on the album, but... It's also one of the lesser-known ones. Uh, they did it live, I know, a few times when the album came out, but I don't think it really made it onto a lot of future set lists. If I'm remembering correctly, I still need to do a little bit of research on their set lists around this time. But it's a great song. Again, I think I was saying about Around Tomorrow's Dream, where it gets really melodic towards the middle, Cornucopia does the same thing where it's it's almost psychedelic and then it leads into this really kind of fast, jumpy kind of part. Uh, again, really solid arrangement. Has a lot of different things going on with it and also contains a lot of the old Sabbath sound. Um, so it's new yet familiar. And th that I think they really nail really well here. Uh, up next is Laguna Sunrise, another major highlight and one of my favorite instrumentals they've done, along with the two on Master of Reality. This is one of my favorites. Uh, Tony apparently wrote it, coked out of his head, waiting for the sun to come up in California. And he's like, oh, I'm going to write a song <laughs> about a sunrise. And it's this one also has an orchestra in the back of it. And while it does repeat a lot, uh, it builds, and the atmosphere on it is really, really good. Um, I w it's just a great song to just chill out and listen to. I always felt like it was. It, it's a good cool down moment on the album, like there was on Master Reality with uh, like Solitude or even um, Orchid. Uh, better than Changes, I feel. Changes was just a bump in the road that I was just like, oh, this this doesn't feel right. But but Laguna Sunrise works really well with them kind of expanding more on their sound. 
And then that leads into a really unique song that's track number nine, that's St. Vitus Dance. It opens with this really like almost folky kind of riff. It's almost like happy sounding, but then the verse riff is totally like um, something you would have heard on Master of Reality. And the song kind of, I feel like it kind of just, it's another one of those songs where it just kind of ends. It just doesn't really go anywhere. It kind of repeats between these two riffs, kind of. But it's a it's a good. I always felt like it was a good, um, unique, melodic rocker. Even though it doesn't feel very Sabbathy, I always felt like it was a good, like, rare, um, not rare, uh, unique. Just a unique B side. Trying to think of another word to put with unique, but I can't think of anything. But oh well, it's just a good b-side i think to discover and it's like oh they actually played something that kind of sounds like that that's interesting but that just shows what sounds they were experimenting with and where they were going and they weren't necessarily wanting to stay doom and gloom and heavy uh it was all just exploring different ideas and stuff like that and then saint vitus dance finally leads into my favorite song on the album and that's Under the Sun, Every Day Comes and Goes. This song could have easily been on Master of Reality. It opens with a super heavy, sludgy riff. And then the main riff is this really ominous kind of just chugging riff. Uh, with Ozzy just belting out the vocals. This, this album really shows Ozzy starting to come in into where master of reality he came into his own this shows him almost become more of a musician because obviously he was the one the only one out of the group that wasn't like a true musician he kind of just was he always went on the whim with thing with his vocals but here he actually does really well with a lot of the melodies songs like super not he's extremely his, his vocals are super solid in and this is another song where he kind of, he, he has a little bit of like his standard kind of uh, monotone feel in it, especially in the, the fast part, which is almost punky feeling. Uh, he doesn't go too high, but he also keeps a really, really good melody going throughout that he feels more comfortable with as every album goes. He feels more, he seems like he feels more comfortable or felt more comfortable putting more effort into the melody in his vocals. And this is just, this is really like the start of some of his best vocal work that he, he's, he'd ever done, especially with the next two releases. Uh, the solos for Under the Sun are great, um, especially the solo during the fast part. It's it's totally just Iomi going crazy on the fretboard, and then it goes back into that chugging main riff. And then it ends with the everyday comes and goes kind of part, um, I always thought, because it feels like this song was arranged very similarly to Wheels of Confusion, where it has the straightener ending where the band kind of jams. Under the Sun is the same way. It's composed very similarly where it's kind of slowish mid-paced and then it has a fast part and then goes back into that slowish mid-paced part. 
Um, and then finally it ends with this, this slow trudging epic jam with another one of those trademark Iomi solos where he goes up the neck and goes, do, 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 I'm sure I just butchered that again. It's one thing I got to stop doing is butchering these songs. Uh, but it's a really melodic closer that is super heavy at the same time because it, it slows down and then it stops with I only just do 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 and then do 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 and it just does that over and over until it gets slower and slower and then just do 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 and just ends much like Master of Reality it just ends with just a like a hammer and a nail just hits and it's silent. You're just like, holy shit, what a closer. And that ends volume four. Very ambitious album. Sounds, all kinds of different sounds all over it. The album, after it released, I believe it released, let me grab my notes. It really, yeah, September 25th, 1972. The band went on a huge world tour for it. Of course, at this point, they're they're starting to really ride high on that rock and roll excess. Um, but some, the, the good times would not last. They actually played the Hollywood Bowl, and Iomi collapsed after the show because he was exhausted, and with all the cocaine use, his body was pretty much like, I can't take anymore. So, I believe due to that, they had to cancel their U.S. tour, um, <clears throat> which I believe they eventually made up a few of the dates, but they basically had to take a break and be like, okay, we gotta slow down. Um, one thing to note here, especially with one of my favorite lesser-known bands, Buffalo, who are always known as the Australian Black Sabbath, they opened up for a couple of Black Sabbath gigs in Australia, which was a high point for that band. Just a little bit interesting info there. But the band would run its course for Volume 4. Of course, critics didn't like it. The album did go gold, though. So it was, it definitely, there There was no slowing the band down. And they soon would go back to L.A. to start on Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. However, they did not like where they were going with it. Decided to move to England. Started work on an album that they really honed in on their progressive elements. And we will get there next episode. Thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. I've been getting a lot of feedback from people saying that they like the podcast. They like the free form of it. I'm really glad you guys do. I like just coming in on this after like a couple days of listening to the album, getting some thoughts together kind of just talking about it for a half hour. I really appreciate that people like it. Hopefully you guys keep listening. Like I said, you can get in contact with me on the Glistening Metal Podcast Instagram page. Uh, positive comments, negative comments, anything that can be done better. Always appreciated. Stay heavy, guys. <laughs>